I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, The Hackitude Sessions. In this series of conversations centered around my book, Hackitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you conversations with women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us track our journey through the dark woods of the second half of life. Hackitude is a radical rewriting of the decades ahead for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Hackitude, the book and the membership program at hackitude.org. Hi, everyone. So I am here today with Peggy Orenstein, who is the New York Times bestselling author of eight books, including one, the title of which I really wish I had been able to imagine, which is Cinderella Ate My Daughter. I don't think I've heard a more wonderful title. Um, And most of her books are on issues affecting women and girls. She's also an award-winning journalist and a speaker on gender issues and many other things. And Peggy's here to talk about, in the context of Haggitude and all of the things that we are interested in here, she's here to talk about her latest book, which is a, a kind of memoir. It's more, much more than a memoir called Unraveling, which, amongst other things, is about looking at the world through the lens of shearing a sheep, spinning its wool and knitting what she calls the ugliest sweater in the world. So welcome, Peggy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And uh, the the obvious question, and probably not a very original one to begin with, is why at the age of 56, 7 that you were at the time, did you decide to that you really needed at this stage in your life to shear a sheep, spin its wool, and knit the ugliest sweater in the world. I wish I had an answer to that. Um, you know, uh, I, I love that that you said um, looking at the world through uh, through the lens of doing these ancient tasks because that's really so much of what this was. It wasn't just doing them; it was about using them as kind of a way to explore. Um, I mean, really, the history of the world. It turns out you can tell the whole history of the world through textiles, as well as um, women's labor and the ways that we've always used um, textiles and fabric uh, and needlework in particular to express political dissent, um, you know, weird, quirky things like that the Greeks couldn't see blue in ancient Greece um, and and environmental questions about why we don't look at our clothes, the way we think about our food, um, and this whole you know, what it meant to be a midlife woman. Um, I mean, the occasion for it, I kind of something, I, I'm a knitter and I always, as a and a journalist, so that combination is kind of like, you, you have a tendency to always just kind of ask why. And so I would knit and just sit there and look at the yarn and think, why? What, how did somebody do that? Who thought of taking two sticks <laughs> and some string and making us i mean that's great that takes such a leap of imagination who thought of making the string in the first place and how and it just kind of led me back and then the um when the pandemic hit and i had been touring with a book uh, a new book and lockdown happened and i was just like you know i just felt like it was like plunk i landed in my chair for a year um with nothing to do uh i thought well 
now's the time. And then in addition, I guess the other piece was, um, this was a real link for my, with my mom, not the shearing, but knitting was I, like a lot of women. And I talk about this. I learned from my mom and it's, it was a, so common that I started abbreviating it in my notes, S-L-H-F-M, she learned from her mom. Um, and it becomes also a meditation on mother, not only my mother and me, and my mother died in 2016, um, but on my own mothering with my daughter who was leaving home, was was going away to college and facing the empty nest. So all of that kind of combined to make me just feel like I needed to go out and it was a compulsion. It's interesting, isn't it? I remember a, a time in my life when actually when I was living in America and wondering whether I needed to come back home again and had had a, at least two midlife crises by that point and a divorce and didn't know what to do. And having been a very bad knitter as a child, I would drop every stitch, you know, every line, I would drop a stitch and there would be holes all over the place. I felt this bizarre compulsion to take up knitting again and to try to teach myself. And I did it literally for months, every night after work, most of the weekends. And it was a, a strange sense of kind of knitting myself into being, you know, or or into a new form. And I came out of the other side and then I kind of stopped. It's just almost as if it had fulfilled its function, which is strange. So it, it is something that a couple of my friends have also found in those kind of midlife years. So what do you think it is about getting to midlife, about getting to this stage in our lives where we really want to go and do something very grounding and, you know, hands on like that? It's, it's a very, it's very calming. I mean, I think a lot, you know, everybody was taking up, you know, they were baking their sourdough and knitting <laughs> their Harry Styles sweaters and making little things out of felt um, during the lockdown um, because I think it's grounding. Um, it, it, there's somebody I was, oh my gosh, I was on a, I was on a radio show, calling show yesterday and somebody called in to say that she had put electrodes on her head while she was knitting to measure to see what happened. I know. I thought I was Gosh. sort of on the show. Going, oh, that's cool. And then afterwards I thought, wait, where did you get electrodes? Why do you have a machine that, you know, like it was so peculiar, but cool. And she measured her brain waves to see what happened when she knit. Right. And, and she said it, it put her in the same, she must've been a neuroscience scientist uh, or something, but uh, she went to the same alpha state as meditation. Yeah. So it does do that. You make something beautiful. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is incredibly grounding. I mean, it's a really common, there's a reason why, um, why people pick it up. It's, 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 a, it's a, also, you know, a lot of, a lot of people told me one of the things that's been really beautiful about this book for me, um, because my, I, I do feel in somewhat, some ways it's of a piece with my other books that I've always been interesting, interested in examining the unexamined aspects of ordinary life, particularly as they pertain to women and girls, um, but I just came out of writing two books on teenagers and sexuality. And when I would go around with those books, I heard some really hard stories. I mean, it, I, I carried a lot. I became a vessel right. for a lot of pain in, mm -hmm. in those books. And this one has been sort of like a balm to the soul because I keep getting stories of people who tell me about how you know, they connected to their mother or the, or they have these beautiful things that somebody made them from years ago or, you know, like all these gorgeous stories of time and space and happiness and joy and creativity. Oh, my gosh, it's been such a gift. And it is a very sensory experience, isn't it, knitting? I mean, whichever kind of yarn 
you use i mean you you have the fact that you're yes you are in this meditative state because you're trying to follow a particular pattern um you have i always used wooden sticks you know i couldn't bear the metal you have the feel of the yarn whether it's mohair something nice and furry or whether it's something i used to we have hebridean sheep which um are little black ones with horns and they have very coarse wool and that you know, although it's not as pretty, perhaps, as feeling mohair, it has a particular grounded and rootedness of its own. You have the colour going on as well. And it's just an amazing kind of feast for the senses, which you wouldn't imagine if you just looked at someone rubbing two sticks together with string, as you put it. It slows you down. I don't know. I, I didn't, you know, I, I knit as a kid also. Um, I learned when I was 11 or 12 from my mom. And I put it, I did it. I wasn't that good at it. I picked it up again. Um, right after college and I knit for about 10 years and really intensely and then it, it started to hurt my arms um, because okay. I also was typing all day and so I had to kind of choose my career or my knitting it was really hard mm. and I put knitting down and I didn't do it for a long time and then my sister-in-law said if you use the connected needle they, you know, they came out with those connected needles with the cable it balances the weight and I could do it again and I was so happy, so happy to be able to go back to it. And I love, I knit almost every night. I just, I don't even care. And why, part of why I said it was the world's ugliest sweater, it's not. And I actually think it gets more attractive the more I take it out to events and stuff. It likes being out, I think. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but I didn't care. I wanted to make a point sort of about process being the point, not the result. And I do feel that way even now when I knit things. I don't, I kind of don't care how they come out. I mean, I'd like them to be, a, you know, wearable or whatever, but I like the process so much. And it's one of the few things as somebody who does something creative for a living, writes for a living, although I think we all do creative things for a living in a way, um, that gets so bound up with marketing and commerce and, you know, selling and having to hit your marks that some of the joy of the creativity erodes. And so to relearn and have the amateur's, spirit and the beginner's mind and to relearn process um that too is just a real gift of, of doing this book so so i can understand clearly why the knitting but what on earth possessed you to shear a sheep i mean what on earth were you doing <laughs> you know, I, I, you're asking me that i mean it's funny i did a i did a book event the other night um in in California where I live and somebody came who I followed uh for a year when I was writing Girls and Sex she is sort of the hero of Girls and Sex and she said and we spent a lot of time um in a, going to a school that was sort of uh, up in Sonoma which is where the sheep live and she said you know every time we passed a sheep this was 10 years ago she said, every time we passed a sheep, you'd say, oh, I really want to shear sheep. All I want to do is shear sheep. And I said, I did, because I don't remember that at all. And she said, oh, yeah, you were really into it. You have wanted to shear sheep for it. I don't know. I think I just, it, again, it's like this journal. I, well, I do come from a family of homesteaders. Right. You know, so I do have a little bit of that in me. Like, uh, I grew up, my 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 grandpa grew up on a homestead in North Dakota, Um and he oh they didn't have sheep but as far as I know but they he would I grew up on these stories of him you know he did used to break wild horses and you know raise barns and build fencing and you know all this kind of stuff and I loved those stories when I was a little girl and I loved I was I was just obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder who realizing now there's a lot of issues with Laura Ingalls Wilder but at the time um 
you know, Little House in the Big Woods, where she churns the butter. And I don't know if you read those books, but I know. So, of yeah. If you grow up in the Midwest, if you grew up when I did in the Midwest or in the West, there's, and, and of course, Little House on the Prairie, people watched that TV show for years, but we used to have a butter churn in our house, which we didn't use. It was just an antique butter churn. And I would sit and pretend to churn butter. So I think I always just had a thing <laughs> about wanting to do those things. It is curious, you know, because we have what you guys would call a, a homestead and we tend to call a small holding and have done that for, oh gosh, I don't know, 20 years now, including keeping various types, small flocks of pedigree sheep. And having seen my husband grapple with even the small sheep and attempt to shear them, it's just the last thing in the world that I would actually want to do myself. I mean, he actually has a contraption now that he's got older to hold their heads, you know, so oh, that they don't wriggle and he can actually shear them um, yeah. kind of while they're standing up because it's just so backbreaking and painful. So I'm, I'm very admiring that at that stage in your life, you decided to, to have a go at it. But I guess it wasn't easy. No. Yeah, people don't know. First of all, people don't know that it's that it's um, it doesn't hurt them. It's really important to say that they right. need to be shorn. It's just yeah. like giving them a haircut, but just like a toddler, except one that's covered in lanolin. So it's greasy mm. and it slides, which people mm. also don't realize including me, um, it doesn't want to be there. You know, it doesn't like having it. It's, it's not that it hurts it. It's just like no fun. And right. so, and it's incredible. I, I, I mean, Sharon, I just didn't understand. I didn't know. I'm an urban girl and I didn't understand how difficult. It's really, really, and they have hooves and you've got a whirring blade that's hot and no safety. And it it was the most physically arduous thing I've ever done. Yeah. In and I didn't really notice that everybody doing it was half my age. Um, you know, <laughs> for a reason yeah for a reason and I just thought yeah sure sign me up I can do it. no no problem but I learned so much too you know I all of this stuff you just like I didn't expect to learn not only so much about sheep themselves who are lovely and brilliant and and um, smart and all these things but about you know the whole history of wool and 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 how it has how we've evolved these animals and how important it is to environmental just to climate justice that we embrace natural fiber like this and what has happened to us that we haven't with fast fashion and all of this stuff i mean you just it was just this tremendous learning opportunity that i you know was it was just great fun even though it was incredibly hard and i'd never do it again <laughs> very wise and talking about wool and well after you sh um had um, shorn the sheep then you spun the wool which of course is another uh, after you'd cleaned it and taken all the bugs out of it and all the good stuff you decided also to learn spinning and as you mentioned in the book and as i mentioned in haggitude there are so many myths and fairy tales of spinning women and particularly spinning women in the second half of life yeah um, yeah. The fates were, uh, were the, well, they're variously described, but in the old texts, all three of them are very old women, um, very right. clearly. Yeah, absolutely. All three of them are old women. And, um, you know, old goddesses in the Germanic tradition, Mother Huller, for example, yeah, 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 again, yeah. a midlife or post midlife woman, literally weaving or spinning the world into being. And that sense of woman, women's work at that time, having that sacred content is really very interesting. And it, 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 it struck me as when I was writing Haggadude as how sad it was that that 
concept of it as necessary and sacred work, not just for the purposes of, you know, making cloth and all of the domestic stuff that women did, but actually there was something very meaningful about it. Yeah, We've lost that, but it's there everywhere in the old stories, isn't it? It really is. I didn't realize all of three of the fates had in, in, in some texts been older. I had read that they were that the they were three different ages, that Clotho was the one mm. who, but I love that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah, I became very interested in them as, because I had thought that as sort of the phases of our lives and the way that we evolve and particularly um, the last one who cuts the thread and the idea of the crone. And as I was myself, I was 58 when I, when I started the book, um, I'm 61 now and uh, making that life passage right then. And again, because I was making that passage um, during lockdown, I, you know, at a time when if, if I wasn't, I'd be thinking about it probably. And, you know, I'd be sort of thinking about it and pushing it, you know, not wanting to think, thinking about it in a negative way. Um, but it forced me to work, you know, to stop, think about all of that and, and, and really look at the power mm -hmm. that was being denied. And honestly, I'll tell you, I feel, um, well, I will just say that I feel that there could be nothing more. I mean, I love that in all traditions, except the Judeo-Christian one, apparently, um, it is women who are spinning the world or weaving yeah. the world. And it's older women. And it is the most elemental and mystical and divine idea mm -hmm. that women can make something from nothing. Of course we can. We make people, you know? <laughs> and, exactly. And, that, and how it becomes melded with the idea of the witch and the fear of the witch. Yeah. And how you know how crones or hags or or, or harridan can mean simultaneously this thing that's fearsome and and you know repellent to people, but also wisdom, justice, all of these. I mean, I became very and you know interested in writing about that and in examining what it meant to me and in watching myself with things like I just wrote a um, a piece spinning off of the book, haha, spinning um, on um, women's how for the New York Times um, for the New York Times that was on how women have always used knitting as a political vehicle um, and for expressing dissent, for expressing voice, especially when we couldn't, when we couldn't vote, you know, all these other right. things. Um, and one of the things I say is that there's a tendency um, to think that, you know, it starts with Michelle Obama talking about how people are always surprised that she knits. And I say, why? Well, it's because people think that knitting is something that old ladies do on the porch um, and our marginalized. And I said, well, before I say that that's not true, that everybody knits, let's just stop and look at that. Because so what if it were? So what if it was just older women who did it? Like, mm -hmm. why do we dismiss and discount that instead of embracing that and recognizing the power of that? So even in our attempt to, you know, embrace diversity, we reject reflexively what it means to be an older woman. So that, you know, I, I was very interested in that idea and saying, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up and say, and we have this power and the strength. And I will tell you, this is what I was going to say that it has been inordinately hard to publicize this book, to get it out into the media. And because, and I, this is, as you said, this is my eighth book and my books have even I mean, they have been pretty universally well-reviewed. They've been pretty successful. There've been, you know, one that wasn't so much, um, but it still got on TV. It still got on the radio, not this one. And I honestly think because this one has been beautifully reviewed, it's been embraced that Peace on the Times was number one for three days on the New York Times. I think it's 
ageist sexism. Mm-hmm. I think people don't want to put onto their airwaves um, an older woman talking about activities that older women are associated with because it make it they feel tainted by that. And I could be wrong. I can't prove it, but I that's what I believe. And and I you know I th- I think that everybody is so fixated on attracting youth. Mm-hmm. and attracting what they think of as beauty that uh, we get thrown under the bus. Indeed. And I think that's why we need such books. And, you know, of course, that is exactly why that I began to write Hagitude, because in my research project going back through old European myths and folklore, there were so many interesting old women. They were not necessarily the protagonists of the story, but they didn't have to be. They were the ones in the background making the story happen and pushing the narrative along. and. The fates, of course, as well as kind of weaving or spinning and or all three things, uh, the world into being, the, the whole point of the fates was to keep it in balance as well. So we have this bizarre idea of the fates, which is that, you know, they kind of portion out um, everybody's destiny and everything is preordained and they tell you what you're going to be and what you're going to do and you can't change it and then snip, you're dead. And that isn't actually at all what it was like in um, old Greek philosophy. The fates were the ones who understood how much, how much, how much there was in the world for the taking. And to put it simplistically, and if somebody took too much, or if somebody took what was not for them, the whole cosmos went out of balance. And so they had to step in to put it in balance. And often that meant that the people who had put it out of balance didn't end well. You know, that's just the nature of old ladies and the nature of the story. But that whole concept of spinning and weaving the world into being isn't just that they made pretty patterns. It's that they made the patterns that that were necessary. You know, they had this concept of necessity as well, that necessity mm-hmm. was the mother of the fates. And I think if we can just remind, well, not just, it's much bigger project than that. But if we can remind people of that, that for so long a part of our history, old women actually were revered in that sense, certainly mythologically, then we stand a chance, surely, of changing what the way that people see old age in the future. I mean, I have lots of younger women around me who really want to see a picture of something that they desperately want to grow into, you know, when they're older. Have you found that too when you're talking to people? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think we just, we have such a, our our popular culture is so universally negative towards, towards older women. And I, you know, and I, and I think that you have to hit a certain point before you sort of notice it. Um, but yeah, I also feel like I am surrounded by women, not even that much younger, but women in their 40s or women, you know, who are 50. That I, I said earlier, I have a lot of younger friends. I have a lot of younger friends. And that's partly, I think, because they want to see somebody a little bit older and have somebody a little bit older in their lives who's sort of forging the way and showing that there's vitality and um, necessity in in how we in in what you know we are a necessary i I think about the grandmothers of um the grandmother theory Mm -hmm. yeah the um and i remember reading about that when i was um i I think about 30 the importance of postmenopausal women the importance of grandmothers in society and how they played this incredibly you know crucial role just like the fates in supporting and keeping 
the world together, basically keeping and that that it was completely wrong how we were thinking about elder women as being sort of shunted aside, you know, because patriarchy. Um, so yeah, I, I I I think that's really true, and I loved looking at the um, the fates and keeping that world into balance. And I thought, man, there those those ladies were the original multitaskers. They had mm -hmm. a lot on their plate. They knew how to do a lot of things at once. They were very very busy. Indeed, yeah. and I tend to to ask um, people who I talk with for the Haggadite sessions. How, what their own inner hag looks like, you know, because that's one of the things I talk about in the book, finding the archetypal old women that perhaps best reflect your particular gifts and your particular perspective on the world. So we have, you know, the dangerous old woman, the kind of Baba Yaga type. We have the, the mentors and the fairy godmothers, and we have the women who are weavers and spinners and weave the world into being. I mean, is that your inner hag? The, the woman who weaves the world into being, or do you see your your elder woman gift as slightly different from that? And that's more a tool that has allowed you to develop it, if that makes sense. That's a really interesting idea. Um, I mean, I guess I feel kind of mixed up when I think about my, you know, my kind of inner Hagitude self, she's very kind of shiny. <laughs> she's sort of like um that was visual for <laughs> audio but she 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 does kind of leap forward and i think I, I mean i felt i was i was thinking about this yesterday because again i was on a i was doing a radio show and um they asked me about um this the when i was carding the wool i i could slow down enough to spend time with my dad who has had he, he died recently but he had dementia and he was during lockdown we obviously couldn't see him, um, and anyway, he was in Minneapolis, and I would sit and talk to him, um, and I and we would sing because that's a different part of the brain than the part affected by dementia. And I burst into song on the radio, on live radio. I started singing "You Are My Sunshine," and as I was singing, I was thinking to myself, I never would have done this a few years ago. I've been way too inhibited. I'm getting disinhibited. I'm becoming disinhibited as an older woman. So I'm not sure which one that fits with, but I, I feel like I'm not organized enough as a person to weave the world into being, though I do write the world into being. I mean, that's yeah, very important. Exactly. It's the same kind of thing, isn't it? It's just different, yeah. just different creative acts. Uh -huh. but, I, but I do feel also a really profound call to mentorship. Um, so I think that's a big part of of who I am too, that I, I really, as I've been getting older, there's particularly a, a handful of younger women writers um, that I just feel happiest when I'm supporting them. Um, so can you mix? Can you mix the, the icons? I, I think I think at this age you can do whatever the hell you like. And, you know, who's going to tell you? No, I bet right, they're right. not. Particularly if you've shared a sheep, I think that gives you an extra an extra bit of clout, you know, just just wave the wave the shearing machine at them. You know, did it but I don't know when I was sitting there and singing on live radio I thought wow how interesting that this is what I've become yeah <laughs> no I would say actually the same thing has happened to me I was always a very very shy child and teenager I had moments when I could be a little bit more extrovert when I was an adult but very much introverted and very much aware of what people would think about what I said and I really just don't give a damn most of the time now it's not to say that I would be rude uh, but it's just like you know I think I think one of the things one of the reasons why women 
particularly at menopause and just afterwards experience such great rage, which seems to be a phenomenon amongst all of the women that I know anyway, is because we've just tied ourselves up in bags for all of our lives. And thought, oh, I mustn't say that, or they won't like that, or I must be nice, or I must be good, and I must be polite. Bugger that. You know, there just comes a point when menopause burns all of that away. And I think it releases something that is necessary. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, I, I, I went into menopause very abruptly. I had, um, I've had breast cancer a couple of times. And so at a certain point I had my ovaries removed and boom, I was in menopause. So it was a little weird for me, but yeah. I think that, that sort of older, when I hit, when those things made more sense, um, there was that rage, definitely that rage where you just, mm, and then it kind of went away to a degree. I mean, I still can feel it, but I feel, I guess that's why I say the singing, I feel like this desire to, uh, oh, and, and maybe I think it's partly being in this world that's so polarized and ugly and Donald Trump and social media that I didn't want to be part of that. And so I wanted to, I wanted that sort of expression to be a little more joyous um, and, and get to that part of me. And so I guess that bursting into song, I thought, you know, not that I thought I'm going to express joy and burst into song, but when I was watching myself do that, I thought this is a disinhibition that's about just being like just being who you are isn't it yeah it's just being who you are and not holding back from that for once and not just you know and and the rage was felt so good and important and it wasn't it's not all of who I am it isn't really ultimately who I am Mm. so I feel like I'm getting to a different place with it now Yeah, I think the rage strips away what needs to be stripped away, but what's left is probably different for each of us. So I feel very steady now, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas I would have been, I mean, not kind of overreactive, um, but I I just feel that I understand my life. I understand who I am. I understand the world a little bit more. And I just feel as if I can mostly deal with it. But curiously, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that came from my own experience of cancer with lymphoma, which happened during lockdown, which was edifying, as you could imagine. And you know, we, you and I had a very brief exchange by email about that. For, for me, what I had was a very aggressive lymphoma that if I hadn't been treated very quickly would have killed me. And the fact that it was aggressive actually makes it more treatable, which is lovely, but that's kind of by the by. So it brought me very much to a fuller awareness of the inevitable end of this journey, which is death for all of us, you know, elderhood, to look at elderhood, um, without being able to think of death and to talk about death and to face death, which is another one of those things our society does very badly, is not particularly constructive. And I know that you told me that your cancer had always seemed, uh, both times, for heaven's sake, um, had you had it twice, um, seemed to be less um, life-threatening, but nevertheless, it, it is a little death. The treatment itself is a little death, isn't it? And it, it still makes you aware of that. How, how did that work for you? Well, it, it was interesting. It was the first time I was, I had breast cancer and then I had a recurrence. And the, the first time I was 35. And so it was out of time. You know, it was, I mean, it was an interesting, my friends just didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. That 35 year olds don't get cancer. I mean, that's wrong. Um, and, and I was angry. I thought I'm not supposed to face my mortality now and I won't, <laughs> and, um, but the people who were, who were the most helpful to me were women who were over 50 women in their fifties and sixties who knew what to do because their friends had had cancer because they'd been through it with their mothers because, you know, I mean, they, they understood how to hold me. And I was so, I was very aware of that and very grateful for that. And then when it came back, I was 50 and 
um, it wasn't that I was ready for it then, but I understood, I understood what it was. I understood what it wasn't. I understood, I, I, I was more capable. It doesn't mean I wanted to, or I enjoyed it necessarily, but I was more capable and ready to start facing questions of mortality. Um, and I guess I also feel having been through that twice, like, damn, I'm still here, Sharon. I mean, I was 35 when I was diagnosed. I'm 61. I'm still here. And I think about it a lot. I think about it all the time. I realize, you know, I mean, I don't think that that cancer is going to kill me. It shouldn't. It could, but it shouldn't. Um, but it was certainly a giant cosmic shake. And I don't take my life for granted. And I do feel, you know, in some ways that this is like icing on the cake. Like I got all this free time that I didn't think I was going to get when I was first diagnosed, you know, almost 30 years so far, free time. Um, right. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is interesting, isn't it? I, I'm wondering uh, when, when that happened to me, because obviously I am a writer about myth and story predominantly, and I tend to see everything in archetypal terms. So I really felt that when that happened to me, it was about being able to kind of make friends with death, you know, or at least walk with death acceptingly, not wanting to go there, but just acceptingly for however long I might have left. And and I started to think about, well, you know, what does death look like to me? And in Haggitude, I wrote about um, some birds that are very prominent here, red kites, which are kind of, you know, um, uh -huh. um, you have them there? Probably. No, they're, 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 okay, they, they, they pick carcasses. And I thought, well, you know, old bone mother, I had this image of a of a, a woman, an old woman kind of picking the bones clean. But I also had in the back of my mind this image of Atropos, you know, the third the third fate. Um, what what would she be? What would she look like? The the woman who actually does the snipping um that ends that ends the lives that the three fates have been spinning. And I just I just wonder if well, you mentioned her specifically that you you had you related particularly to Atropos. And I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that I do I mean because I was thinking so much about the idea of the hag um and I, I think that we all at some point um have to confront and make friends with that person because she's the face in the mirror eventually right, right. I mean you look at the mirror one day and you go huh <laughs> the, yeah. the bags the lines that's hag I mean that's hagitude right I mean you can't mm -hmm. it's not you can you can fight it. You can, I mean, I talk about how, how we are not a society that venerates older women mm -hmm. and just the amount of age for offending plastic surgery. And, you know, I'm just saying it. I'm not judging. I understand why people do it. It's, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing to be in a society that hates you and try to, and try to work for one thing. Um, so I get it. Uh, but you can't, you can't outrun it. Right. Um, can't outrun it and so what are you going to do you can you can feel you you know you go through your mourning for your youth and then you have to embrace um this part of life which is both a powerful part of life and ultimately won't be i mean you i think another thing that was really i i knew that this book would that writing unraveling would bring up a lot around my mom and one of the things with my mom that uh, I write about is how I during lockdown I talked to her all day long but she's dead so I'm talking to her in my head but I'm not talking to her as she was at the end of her life because she was very frail she was very ill um, what I wanted was this sort of thing in defiance of and I don't know if you find this 
with people that you talk to, but with women that you talk to, but I wanted to be able to talk to her when she was my age. I wanted to be able to talk to her when she was in her 60s and I wanted to be in my 60s. That was the conversation I wanted to have. And I wanted to ask her all these things that because I was a self-absorbed young woman daughter who only saw the ways that she didn't see me, um, mm -hmm. that I never asked, you know, what was hard? How Were you lonely? How did you raise a daughter? How did you let her go when it was time to let her go? You know, what was older life like for you? How did you, you know, all these things that I just never asked and maybe wouldn't have wanted to hear or couldn't have hear, heard the answer to, but I wanted her wisdom with me now. And so I was inventing it in my head. And then the piece that I didn't imagine, but became very important in unraveling was um, my relationship with my dad who was still alive then. And that's the piece that, you know, that I think about a lot in terms of myself. I, what if I go like him? He went, my mom was still in sound mind when she went, she wasn't in sound body, but my dad lost his cognition mm -hmm. and that's so scary. And, 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 but I think that, you know, again, watching my younger friends, I'm the youngest, also the youngest in my family. So maybe, and my parents lived a long time. I got to, I, I had my dad a long time. Um, but that passage of, of ushering your parent out of life mm -hmm. and how that also encourages and forces you to confront your own aging and your own potential death someday mm -hmm. and make friends with it. But also, I mean, my rage that I, that I carry with that, and I don't know how, what it's like where you live, but the American system, which, you know, big surprise, our childcare system is terrible. Our medical system is terrible. What we do to elders is God awful. Mm -hmm. And what we do to the people caring for them, families and caregivers is God awful. Mm -hmm. And so my rage for that is, is really not about aging and dying or even the potential for dementia or Alzheimer's, but it's about what happens to you if that happens to you mm -hmm. and the, the lack of support that's there, that what isn't there for us at that time. I'm very angry about yeah. that. Yeah, it it is exactly the same here. And that 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 it, it, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? My mother died um, during lockdown when I was when I had no immune system because of my treatment for lymphoma, and um, she lived right up in the north of Scotland, and I live um, in Wales, which is um, about a nine hour drive away. I was not allowed to go and see her, and I am an only child. We had a complicated relationship. You know, she was an alcoholic when I was a teenager, and that wasn't fun. Um, but there was a strange sense of unfinished business there, you know. Um, and kind of not really seeing her before she died, except on a five minute FaceTime call one time. And I, the fact that for me, my mother, as she grew older, diminished in lots of ways. So when she was younger, she was interesting. You know, she was not easy. She really was not easy, but she had, <laughs> she was fascinating as a woman. And then as she got older, she just stopped thinking. You know, she would sit in front of the television all day. She wasn't interested in politics or social issues or anything. She went into that kind of classic stereotypical decline that we tend, I think, in our culture to think of when we think of old women and old people. You know, this is how we see old people. And it was a, a shock to me, really, to see her do that and to think, OK, how do we stop that happening? You know, how do we how do we create new ways of 
elder women and and men too, but women particularly, because that's what we're here to talk about, looking at those years, those decades often of life ahead of them and saying, no, I can do something for them. I can be something. I don't have to go. I don't have to turn into a into a couch potato or some kind of, you know, if you'll forgive me for being blunt about it, vegetable. It's hard right. not to see that role model in your own family and, you know, and around you. We have uh, to find them in the stories in some ways. I think, um, you know, my, I mean, my mom also not easy. And, and at the end, there were all kinds of issues for her. And I, I my final image of her is um, she died ultimately of pancreatic cancer. So it was pretty quick. Um, and I saw her at Thanksgiving. She, she was diagnosed in September. I saw her at Thanksgiving. She died in January. And we were, I do think, you know, I, I, I was, I write about how the last 11 days of her life, we were all there. She was in her living room. You know, we're off eating pizza on the other side of the room. She's dying on her side of the room. Um, but it was a beautiful thing. It was, it was hard, but it was beautiful. And I'm so grateful because so many people I know lost parents during lockdown and yeah. you don't get to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but my last image of her at Thanksgiving was she was, you know, she was pretty ill. She was, she had turned, you know, yellow from the pancreatic cancer. She was frail, but she rallied for Thanksgiving. And I think of her in my brother and sister-in-law's home in the kitchen, smiling and laughing mm -hmm. and talking to um, my nephew and my niece and joking around with them. And she had this like sort of last moment that I felt like she sort of rallied herself for and enjoyed and we enjoyed being with her and then it was like she said okay now you know now I can I'm die right and I'm so I don't know yeah I can grateful for mm -hmm. for that to have that moment in my head of seeing her even in her pain even in her anguish have that moment where she loved and was loved um you know fully and truly so I, I I'm I'm grateful for that image in my life too yeah yeah, that, that sounds like a that sounds like a good death if there is such a thing. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of our time. Thank you so much. It's been a lovely conversation. And I just wanted to go back to the book again yeah. before we finish. <laughs> the, book. <laughs> the book unraveling. And just to ask you, um I know we've talked about it clearly in in the in the past um uh 40 minutes or so, but when you got to the end of that process, and I know that, you know, it, it wasn't really an end, but let's just call it an end. When you had the jumper, um, you'd done all of the shearing and all the spinning and all of the knitting and you had the jumper and you looked at it. What did it mean to you? Can you kind of encapsulate that or is that just a silly thing to ask somebody to try to do? I mean, it's it was two things at once. On on, on one hand, I mean, the sweater weighs three pounds. Wow. I, Gosh. I know. I know. Wow. I mean, something went amiss, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Um, but uh, which felt appropriate after because I knit it in 2020, 2021. And it just felt like it carried the yeah. weight of the year in it. Yeah. Um, now, when I look at it, and, and, and I was in a lot of pain, you know, around all of that still and, and fear around lockdown. And, and the fires in Northern California, which had been a whole other layer. I live in Northern California. We lived in a fire zone and it was terrifying. The whole, you know, adding a whole new level of terror um, on, in addition to the fact that everybody was terrified of, you know, getting sick and dying. We were worried that our house was going to burn down. Um, so there was just a lot that was hard in that year that was knit into that sweater. And it also, I did these wonderful things and I did it. 
I did it. I, you know, I managed to, I had this vision of making a sweater from scratch and dyeing it and picking flowers to dye it. And, and I did that. And for me, it was so much, you know, I, I realized through, through the whole, through about three quarters of unraveling, I'm saying, oh, I'm so bad at this. Oh, I'm terrible. Oh, I, you know, I can't do it. Oh, it's, you know, I'm so frustrated, so frustrated, so easily frustrated. And then there's a point where I'm making blue, which is really hard. And I realize, I look at this cartoon that I had on my wall for years that was by this artist named Linda Berry, who is also now in her 60s and fantastic. And she um, writes about how when she was a child, she could do all this crazy art. And then you start asking these questions, these two questions, is it good? Does it suck? And they're the death of creativity. And learn, they, you, you, you develop what, what psychologists call creative mortification, mortification meaning death, yeah. right? Yeah. And you learn that, you know, and somebody gives you a harsh critique, you put the, you know, the pen down for the rest of your life, you know, and so learning, having that moment where I learned and I thought it's the doing that's the thing. It's not. And that's why it's not, you know, the sweater's not that ugly. So it's, it's, it's heavy, but it's not that <laughs> ugly. Um, I could wear it in Wales probably, but it's, you know, learning to love process again, um, I don't know. It, I I I said earlier um, when we were speaking that I felt like I had lost that, and um, because I've spent my whole life being a professional creative person, and I think anytime we do these projects, when we bake, when we cook, when we, um, and it's so rare. I mean, I think that's also as an older person to take on something brand new mm -hmm. and say, "I'm going to learn how to do this." We don't do that very often. We like to be competent. We like to be experts at what we're, and not, you know, not as a function of age per se, but just because over time, you know what you're good at and you know what you're not. And you start learning to cancel out those things you're not good at and to just stop and go, you know what, I'm going to do something I'm not good at. And I'm just going to have the experience. Mm -hmm. That was an incredible thing to do. And I would, if I could, um, if people buy this book and it's successful and my publisher says, hey, that worked, I'd, I would say, okay, what's the next thing I can do? that I'd never think of to do that's really hard and really weird and really, you know, I, I, I would do, I would like to just keep going with that. How wonderful. That's a really, that's Hagitude for sure. There you go. Yeah. You get the Hagitude tick. Yeah. <laughs> a badge, a badge. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for talking with me. How can people find out more about you and the book? Your website, I guess, would be a good start. Go to my website, which is my name, PeggyOrenstein.com. I'm also on social media. I'm a terrible Instagrammer, but I am there. Um, and, uh, you know, the book is, is uh, I guess you have to go on the big bad Amazon to get the book if you're not in the United States. Yeah, that's probably so, the case. They have their place. All right, Peggy. Well, thank you so much again. This was so fun as I knew it would be. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hagitude Sessions. Please think about writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership program, please visit hagitude.org.